Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Business Beyond Borders podcast and I'm Cynthia Deren coming to you from a wet and windy Sydney, Australia. Every couple of months, we partner with exceptional companies to deliver our Expand Your Vision Masterclass, which is a one-day deep dive into creating your international strategy. If you want to create a stellar international strategy, this is a great place to start. To find out when the next masterclass is on and to book your ticket, go to internationalbusinessaccelerator.com forward slash events or follow the link in the show notes. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that I usually interview founders and execs who are from companies that have already successfully gone global, sometimes in a small way and sometimes in a very big way. But today we're doing something a little bit different. I'm talking to my colleague, Zach Selch, the international sales guru. Zach specializes in healthcare sales and he's spent his career solving international sales challenges that CEOs can't fix. I'm going to be asking Zach for his take on the do's and don'ts of international expansion. So this episode will have plenty of practical advice and how-to tips for founders and CEOs looking to expand overseas. If that's you, keep listening. Zach, welcome to Business Beyond Borders. Thank you very much. Nice to be here, Cynthia. And it is great to have you joining us from Chicago, where it's uh, freezing cold and snowing. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. Even though it should be spring. So I guess my first question for you would be, what are the biggest mistakes that you see companies making as they try to go global? Um, so first of all, I would say we, we choose the wrong markets. Or a lot of people choose the wrong markets. And I, you know, I like to say that when, um, when somebody says that the first two markets they're going into are Japan and France, I, I, I always say they're going to fail because there's no product that those are, the, or those are the specifically the best markets for, you know, for a product, France and Japan. And typically they've chosen them because they want to go to France and Japan, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, they, and they choose these markets because they want to visit them or they've read an article about them. Or sometimes they hire a consultant and that consultant focuses on Japan, right? So you get into the wrong markets and the investment of getting into a market can be so high that that type of thing can be deadly. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, I'd say, you know, they hire the wrong people, right? And again, when you're looking for an international sales manager, what you're looking for is somebody who can close business in multiple markets, right? And again, very often, you know, I, I like to say, imagine the bo a board meets and they say, we have to double our manufacturing. It's urgent for our survival to double manufacturing. And somebody says, hey, I have this friend from college who's really handy and he loves making stuff with his hands. Why don't we make him our head of manufacturing, <laughs> right? And that never happens. But I can tell you that I know people who are chosen as head of international sales because they worked as a waitress in Italy for three years during college, or, you know, they're married to a Vietnamese person. So they say, wow, you know, you've been to Vietnam four times. You be our head of international sales, right? Stuff like that. That happens. And that I think is the number two biggest mistake. I look at this like, if you want to hire somebody who's in charge of your international sales, you want somebody who has closed business in multiple markets. That's, that's the first thing you need. Everything else is secondary, right? Um, thirdly, 
I, I would say, and, and this again, we might argue about this. A lot of times I know people in international business disagree with me on this, but I think very often we're in a hurry to adjust our product for markets. And what I like to say is the first thing you want to do is you want to figure out which market will buy your product the way it is. Yeah, I'd agree with and, that. And, you know, because you, you take a look at it and you say, okay, if I'm selling, re if I have, I'm number two in the United States, I guarantee you there are 25 countries that are going to buy your product the way it is today. Yeah. Now, Japan might not, right? But why, you know, go, why spend a million dollars to make your product fit the Japanese market if there are 25 markets that are going to buy your product the way it is today, right? That's the way I see it. And, you know, so, so those are the biggest problems, the biggest mistakes I think people make. And then they get discouraged and then they come back and they say, oh, you know, we can't do this. It's not going to work for us, right? And, and that's, that's the way it is a lot of the time. Yeah, that really rings some bells for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's talk about then, having mentioned those mistakes, let's, let's uh -huh. talk about the flip side. When you're advising companies about where to expand to, oh. how do you tell them to go about choosing? How should they choose where they're going to go to? Well, so, and again, this is sort of funny because it's, um, and you might have the same experience. I, I typically say to people, okay, sure, let's not talk first about what markets to go into. Let's talk about why people buy your product. And they'll say, no, no, I know that, Zach. Don't talk to me about that. Let, let's, I'm like, no, no, you really have to go back to the basics because I say, well, let's figure out why people buy your products. Is there a particular trigger that triggers them? Is there a particular problem that they solve? Is it a particular type of person who buys your product, et cetera, right? And then can we find people like that with that problem, with that trigger in other countries? And, and, and to give you an example, um, so sometimes I, I deal mostly with healthcare products and very often there are um, situations or products that countries with a growing middle class buy, okay? Because uh, if you're poor, you're willing to take one level of healthcare. As you become more affluent, you want a better level, level of healthcare. But if you're really rich, maybe you're already past this and you're buying something else, right? So you could say, okay, if, if I can see that uh, suddenly, um, you know, 10 or 15% of the country has either entered middle class or is about to enter middle class in the past few years, uh, and the country is above, you know, 20 million people, that might be a very, that might be a sweet spot for my product, right? And then you come up with unusual, you know, it, it, it's typically not going to be the type of thing that you thought of before because you want to go there on vacation, right? Yeah. Um, and then I like to bunch countries together. So, so in my mind, it's almost the same amount of effort to manage three countries as one country. So if I'm going into Peru, I might go into Colombia and Ecuador just because they're going to be logistically easy, right? Or if I'm going into Nigeria, I'll probably go into Ghana and, and you know, one or two other countries around there just because if I'm already traveling there, if I'm already dealing with the logistics, the shipping, all of that, it, it becomes relatively easy. So I like to bunch countries together like that. 
those are some of the things that I'll do. Um, and then, of course, with a lot of these things, you want to check out the regulations. But again, I think regulatory is something that people exaggerate the difficulty on because there are lots and lots of people who will do that for you for money per hour. So you, you can basically say, well, if I need to check them, can I legally sell in Nigeria? I think it fits the demographics. Can I, you can find somebody who for 300 bucks will, will be able to come back and say yes or no, or what the document needs are typically, maybe not always, but, but, but you usually can, right? So those are the type of things I check out to, to look into going into a market. And then once you've chosen where you're going to go to, what do you suggest people do as a way to test the waters? You know, what's the smart way to go about testing whether this market is going to work? Because you could obviously go make a huge investment, set up a right. stuff, have an office, go in and then find out that it flops. How do we make sure that doesn't happen? So that's, that's, relatively difficult, but not, you know, obviously not impossible. And sometimes it's a simple, well, I say simple because I don't mind getting on a plane, but sometimes it's just as simple as getting on a plane or getting somebody on a plane. And depending on who you're selling to um, and, and who you work for. So um, the, as Americans, and I know you use them even though you're Australian, you cheat a little bit, but the, uh, the, the American um, commercial office, right? Um, they are very, very good at helping with this type of thing. So what I do, um, I'll, I'll contact the commercial office and I'll ask them if they can set me up meetings with a number of end users in, a, in one day. Yeah. And then I'll go and I'll talk to end users. Now, it's for, that's very cost effective. So for instance, I can hit nine countries or eight countries in two weeks and talk to five end users in each of them and basically just say, look, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'd like to tell you about my product. What do you think about this? Do you see any problems with this? Would this be interesting? What type of price point would be interesting for you? That kind of thing. And that's, a, that's probably the very, very best way of doing it. Now, it's not cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than making a mistake. There are people who do this professionally. I mean, you can also reach out now. And if you're not American, you don't have access to the commercial service, but I believe Australian, the Australian embassies can do this type of thing. The Canadian embassies can do this type of thing. Israel, Germany, the big embassy, the big countries can do this. Um, you know, so you can, you can look into doing that kind of thing. Um, you can go to trade shows and show it to people. I've gone to a lot of trade shows, maybe about a third of the trade shows I've gone to, I haven't actually been selling. I've been doing research, right? And even to the point of going to a trade show, getting a hotel room near a trade show and asking people to, to come do see a presentation and give you their impressions of a product. Those are the type of things you can do. And they're a lot cheaper than actually going through the process of trying to sell. Um, the one thing I'm going to say is... Uh, a lot of times people ask distributors their impression and I'll do that, but I'll never take that as a final word because the distributor, if the distributor says to you, yes, you can sell in my market and in the end he doesn't sell, he hasn't lost a whole hell of a lot, but he's, he's tied himself to you. You're going to work with him. What, if it works, he works with you. If it doesn't work, what has he lost? 
And I find distributors, I love distributors. A lot of my best friends are distributors, but I never trust them as the sole source of information on a market. So let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, uh -huh. When you have a client and they're thinking about different ways of getting to a market, different channels, and right. they say, hey, Zach, you know, we, uh, we've decided we'd like to, to get a distributor and you have to advise them on what they should be looking for and what kind of questions they should be asking that distributor to work out who to work with. What do you say? Uh, that's, that's a, I love that question. Cause that's, um, uh, again, I, I, uh, I, I didn't want to go into too many mistakes people make, but that's another mistake people make is they choose the wrong distributor or why. And, First of all, again, you have to go back to why people buy your product, who buys it, why they buy it. And you have to divide up basically the labor before you, you start anything up. So you have to say, okay, let's say there are these four parts of the sales process. I'm going to do this. I expect my distributor to do that and, and figure out beforehand what you want the distributor to do because every distributor has a different specialty and, and, and you have to say, okay, I want him to have existing relationships with this group of people, right? For me, typically, what I really want for my distributor is existing relationships with the right end users, mm. right? Um, that, that's typically what I want. So then you basically say, okay, uh, I'm selling something to this end user. What else does that end user buy? and something that doesn't necessarily compete with what I sell, but goes to the same end user. And that's how I'm gonna look for those distributors. I'm gonna look for distributors who are selling another type of product. In a perfect world, it'll be a similar price point with a similar sales cycle. And those are the distributors I'm gonna to talk to. And then I wanna know, well, do they have enough bandwidth? Do they have enough people to cover the market? And, and you basically say, okay, uh, let's say, uh, Mexico, I have a thousand potential customers and my distributor has two salespeople. Is he going to be able to cover all my potential customers? Probably not, right? He has 50. Maybe he's, that's too many, right? So I'm looking for the right level and I want to make sure that he's interested and he's going to give me focus. And I'm going to put all of that in my distribution agreement. Yes. So basically, I'm going to say before I before we before we start working together, I'm going to say, look, my anticipation is that you're going to have four salespeople, and they're each going to be dedicating a minimum of five days a month to my product, and this is what I expect from them. Is that acceptable? And then we can work together, right? I don't want to leave anything to chance. And these are the type of things I'm going to be looking for, depending on the market. You know, the right level of coverage, the right level of competency. And what I expect from them. Now, you could say, no, my product, what's really important is they have to have a very specific technical competency to do installation and service. Maybe that's the most important thing to you. Mm -hmm. but, but you have to think about that beforehand when you're looking for your distributors. I think that's some, that's some really, really great advice, actually. Well, thank you. <laughs> I want to shift gears a little bit now and ask you about your experience of sales processes in different countries. Okay, so what are some of the differences that we see, you know, in the way that things get sold country to country? Well, I'm going to actually answer that a little bit differently because what I try to do is start from the concept that I wanted I want a sales process that's going to work in the most possible countries, right? I want 
a basic framework. And I like to use the, the metaphor of like a pyramid, right? If you think about a pyramid, it's very, very functional, but it's also reproducible and scalable, right? You can make a, a pyramid out of anything. You can make it anywhere. It'll stand up to time, right? It's robust. So, so what I want is to say, okay, what's the minimum framework of the sales process that I can reproduce everywhere? And then what do I have to change? So for instance, let's say that you, you know, the, the basics of a sales process are that you have to identify your, uh, your customer. You have to form trust with your customer or rapport or trust. You have to give the information to the customer that they need to make a decision. And then you have to deal with the after sale, the payment, the shipping, et cetera. Right. So if you're taking a look at those frameworks, well, in every market, maybe finding the customer is going to be different, but it's going to follow a similar structure. You're going to, um, you you know, are are the distributor uh, salespeople going to be looking for the customer? Are you going to be using external intelligence sources to find the customer? Are you going to be at, is the customer going to find you because you use marketing and advertising and, and, and the web? those type of things, right? Um, building rapport, well, what I typically say is if your distributor has a good relationship with your end user, you're borrowing your distributor's trust, right? So you don't need to, you as a manufacturer don't need the trust as long as you have a good reputation. Doing the presentations, well, can you build a presentation that's going to work in 90% of the markets you work? Probably you can, and then you can tweak it. You can, you can dub it. You're, you can train your distributors to change the language, right? You can, um, uh, maybe you have to change the slides so that your pictures look more international as opposed to just using people who look American. But, but can you do that, right? And those type of things. That's what I'm trying to do as much as possible. Yeah. So it's really making something that works pretty much everywhere. Uh, that's what I try to do. Now, obviously, it isn't going to work everywhere, but the more you can do that, because, again, you get tied up with somebody who says, oh, if you want to sell in, uh, in my country, you really have to spend $50,000 to put together a presentation for my country. And you end up with 12 of those, and you've burnt up all of your, your sales budget, right? And, and that's very common. People go down that bunny trail a lot, right? Yeah, I think look, that's another really good piece of advice uh, because obviously <laughs> if you're hitting a bunch of markets, you want to be doing it in the way that's going to be most cost effective, especially if you're right. modest in size and you're just getting right. started in that space. And, and honestly, you do find a lot of consultants who lead you in that direction, right? Where they say, oh, this is a fantastic, you know, Serbia is a fantastic market for you. And I can translate your presentation into Serbian for you. And then you take a look at it and you say, okay, I have four potential customers in Serbia. I have 75 in Germany. Why did I do this? You know? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know what I mean exactly, right? (laughs) Just staying on this topic of how we sell, I noticed that you say on your LinkedIn profile, growing international sales is frequently about channels. Right. Talk about that. Well, it's very expensive to sell directly. And if you're, you know, sometimes I draw the line at a hundred or 200 or million dollars in revenue. You know, if you're less than that, it's going to be almost impossible to sell directly internationally. Yeah. Um, so you want to work with channels. 
And being able to build up the proper channel organization, really just that's how, you know, you, you want boots on the ground, right? You, um, you can't, and it really depends on what you sell, but you, you can't just show up someplace and say, hey, buy my, you know, $100,000 product. I'll be back in a year and we'll talk again later, right? You, you, you need to have a distributor on the ground to keep that relationship going and to answer questions and to move the sales process and all of that. And without a distributor, you, you know, you, you can't really do that. So it, I, I believe most small to medium-sized manufacturers or companies, the best way for them to approach an international, international growth strategy is through channels. And if we're thinking about companies that are going international and, and selling services, possibly they're not looking, they might be looking for a distributor, but might they also be right. looking for a partner and using right. that? Right, they're different. I, I, I use the term part, a distributor or channel, but there are a variety of different types of partners that do that on the ground selling process. And, and and I'm not that familiar also with, I mean, there are people who expand a lot through the internet, right? They, they sell something that people will buy from a website. And, yeah. and I'm not an expert on that, right? There are people who are experts on how to do that. Uh, but that's something that, you know, that I'm, I'm much more familiar with things that have a higher level of required trust and installation. And they're more, um, you know, uh, um, more tangible, right? So... Now, one thing we haven't really talked about yet is the cross-cultural aspect of working internationally, and that can always be uh, very interesting. Yes. Uh, I also noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you say managing cross-cultural teams <laughs> can be among the most challenging of jobs. I'd love it if you could share some of your experiences in that space. Well, well I'll tell you what, you think about it, to be, a good, you know, to be a good salesman, you typically have a pretty big ego. And, and it's difficult to manage good salespeople in general. Now you throw into that the, the cultural aspect and you put together a team of 12 people from different parts of the world and you try to get them to cooperate and play nice together. It can be very, very difficult. And I think the best example, I had two guys on my last teams who were good, good producers and one of them was Australian and very, very Australian. And the other one was Egyptian and very, very Egyptian. And they hated each other. On the one hand, you know, they, they talked about liking each other and they were friendly, but they hated each other with a passion over cultural issues, not over history or anything like that. But, but I'll give you an example. For the Egyptian, if you asked him, if somebody asked him to, do, to help, him out, help them out, he would consider it really rude not to, even if he was on the way to have dinner with somebody else and he knew that he'd be running half an hour. Like helping you out was more important than being on time. Whereas for the Australian, him showing up half an hour late for dinner was incredibly rude. So they both had this idea that, of what the polite thing to do was that was opposite. And, and those type of things happened all the time. And then you get this team which is sort of like 12 bickering children over little things like that and, and it happens a lot um, and very often 
what I find internationally is very often you have to adjust territories. Now, if you're adjusting territory, say within Australia, and you trim a little bit off of one province or one state to another or that type of thing, it, it, it makes sense and nobody gets too, you, typically nobody gets too emotional about it. But when you're dealing with something internationally, suddenly somebody says, well, that, no, no, you can't take that away from me. That's a Muslim country or that's, an, you know, or you can't take that away from me. That's a French speaking country and, or, or, or those type of things. And suddenly you get these arguments and um, it, it becomes very, very difficult to keep everybody happy and everybody calm and, and, and productive, right? So your top tip on managing cross-cultural teams? <sighs> um, you know what? I read a lot about religion and history and try, again, not to say, you know, spend all your time learning about Islam, but try to spend a little bit of time learning about everything, yeah. you know, so you have an idea, a basic idea of where everybody might be coming from and blend them together. And the other part of that is, you know, I would say to people, look, I have a whole team to manage. Everybody's different. Don't take this the wrong way if you don't, if things don't look like they're going your way every time. But we just, we have to have harmony. Everybody's different. You have to suck it up and live with it, right? You know, so. When you were a kid, did you have any inkling that you had an international business career ahead of you? So... You, you know, it's sort of funny. I actually, I started to tell this story where when I was a kid, and these probably aren't going to mean anything to you because uh, of Australia, and, and I think you're a little younger, but I used to watch these cartoons about uh, a couple of people who traveled around the world. And I was very, very much intrigued by this idea as a, as a young boy about seeing the world. And it was as as likely as you know flying over tall buildings or spinning spider webs or anything like that for me at the time right it, it, it seemed incredibly unlikely that i would ever you know see asia or africa when i was a little boy but that's what i really wanted to do and then as i grew um i realized that it wasn't impossible right that you needed basically to have a skill that people would pay you to travel for and um i figured that I could do it through sales. And, and I sort of latched into that, you know, really as a teenager, I came up with that idea that that was what I wanted to do. And it, and it was pretty concrete by the time I was in my very early 20s. So can I ask you, you say it was really unlikely or you felt as a child it was super unlikely that you would ever get to see Asia or Africa or any of those places. Why was that? Well, as you probably know, most Americans don't even have passports. So like, you know, most Americans don't do much traveling. And I was actually quite, um, quite poor, to be, to be perfectly frank. I, I, we were a very low resource family. And uh, my parents didn't graduate college and, 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 and it just didn't seem very likely that I was going to end up you know, as a child, it didn't seem very likely, you know, that I was going to end up traveling any place, let alone, you know, to, to the extent that I've done so far. But it, it was my dream. It was what I really wanted. And, and you know, I made it happen. But, uh, yeah. So that kind of crystallized for you by the time you were in your early 20s. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely by the time I was in my early 20s. Yeah. What happened next? I mean, how did you go from the trailer park to, uh, you know, as I was doing the research for this show, by 33, you were running sales for a South Asia Fortune oh. 1000 multinational. How do you get from the trailer park to doing that in the space of, you know, less than 15 years? Well, so, and, and this again is something that, is um, a meritocracy and it's open to just about everybody who works hard. I went into the military and I worked hard. I did well in the military. And then I got a job um, selling essentially used military uh, ambulances and, and various military supplies in Africa. And, um, and I was doing that by the time I was about 22. And then the wall came down uh, in Eastern Europe. And somebody said, hey, I bet all those countries are going to be looking to buy, you know, the type of stuff that they buy in Africa now, right? Because they were, you know, at, at the time, 30-some years ago, all those countries were, were about as poor as African countries. So um, I worked in, in Eastern Europe for a few years. And by that time, um, I had a fair amount of experience selling to developing economies. And then I basically went into um, a, a, a company, a manufacturing company and sold myself to them. And I got a job as a regional manager and then I got a job as another regional manager. And what I realized at the time was most people who were doing the, the type, what I was really sort of looking for was what I'm doing today, right? I was thinking, where would I like to be when I'm 45 or 50? And I realized that most of the people who are heading sales or heading international sales had a lot of experience in one territory. And I thought, you know what? It would be really helpful if I had experience in multiple territories. So I, I took several horizontal moves which most people don't like to do, but I didn't have a family and I could afford to. And when you do that, you're losing your connections, you're, you're losing your experience. You typically take a dip in, in revenue, but it was a very worthwhile investment for me. So I did that a few times. Um, I went to school in parallel while I was working, which was very difficult. And I also did what, what we call community college, which are sort of like these, they're not degree universities, and they typically teach the type of things that, um, that secretaries or tradespeople know better. So I took courses in shipping and I took courses in, in, document, in document management and letters of credit and stuff like that, which a lot of sales managers need to know but don't know because they don't teach them in university and, and you don't typically pick them up, right? So I did a lot of that kind of study during my, my 20s. Um, and then I got a job for multinational, you know, uh, and, and that actually also was a little bit of luck because I got a job as an account manager in Scandinavia for a multinational. And my first day of the job, I went in and my boss said to me, I have a problem. I'm, I'm going to ask you if you can help me solve. Uh, they put South Asia under my responsibility. And it's, it's a total screw up and I need to put it under somebody 
do you mind, instead of taking the job I hired you for, do you mind, instead of being an account manager in Scandinavia, which was considered sort of an easy job, do you mind taking this job that nobody else has succeeded in? And, and he said to me, he goes, if you, if you don't succeed, I promise you I'll give you the other job back in a year. And I thought, you know, okay, on the one hand, I could be one of, you know, 200 account managers. On the other hand, I could be one of 20 directors. What's better? And it was, a, it was again, it was a worthwhile gamble and it worked out really well. And, and that was really the job that gave me my first chance to have um, a big market and a team and a lot of resources and to really put in place a lot of the stuff that I had learned over the years. And that really was a, a turning point for me. And that, that, that worked out really great. And which, which country was that in? I was in India, but I was responsible for, for India, uh, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri, and Sri Lanka. And was what you were doing then pretty much the same as what you do now? Yeah, you know, it was, um, it was building up a team and putting in place systems and figuring out how to grow sales. Mm -hmm. And I actually learned, and also like you got to keep in mind, um, Indians are some of the toughest negotiators and buyers in the world. So working in India is really, really a great school. Every day was tough. Every, every day was tough working with people. And, um, but it was an opportunity. I had a very dysfunctional system in place and I had to figure out how to fix it. And it really was a great opportunity to go through. It, it really taught me a lot of what I've been doing since then for the past 15 years where I, I went in and I said, okay, are we prospecting correctly? No, I don't think we are. Well, what should we be doing? Okay, how can we fix this? Are we doing our initial presentations correctly? No, I don't think we are. How can we fix this? You know, are, are we doing this correctly? No, or, or, you know, should we be changing people? Should we mo be moving people around within the team? All of this. And it was a fantastic opportunity. And I, I just learned a huge amount. And, and it was very successful. I was able to grow our... Um, our sales by almost 3000% uh, over a couple of years. And I was able to bring in the single biggest purchase order ever in, in my company's history. And it wasn't through fantastic salesmanship. It was just sort of through going through and figuring out what we were doing wrong and how I could improve it and putting in place new systems. And, and being able to do that has been very, very helpful for me for the rest of my life. So. So that's a great segue to my next question. We were talking earlier about what you do. And uh, you said to me, I'm kind of like the anti-CEO. And I said, oh, well, what is that? So I thought I might give you to explain for our listeners what the anti-CEO does. Well, I think I am very focused on what I do. I'm, I'm a sales manager or a sales leader, I'd like to say. And I, I probably, you know, if you took me and put me in front of a company where I had to deal with all the different parts of that, I wouldn't know how to do that. And I'm, I'm not a founder. I'm not an inventor. I'm not even really what I'd call a marketer because I think part of marketing is developing the right products, right? What I really know how to do is take a, a product and figure out how to sell it and where to sell it and what systems to use. And... I'm not necessarily the type of person who 
everybody in the company is going to say, wow, I just, you know, love being behind Zach. Zach puts a spirit in the company. You know, that, that's not me. Um, typically, the, sale, the people who work for me in my teams who are salespeople uh, learn a lot from me. The really good ones typically end up really liking me and making money and, and enjoying that. Uh, but, but, you know, some people don't like working with me or for me. Um, I can be a little rough and I'm not, and I wouldn't sell myself as the person who, who really, you know, gets the whole corporation to band together to, to, to achieve things. And I'm, I'm certainly not the person who's going to invent anything. And I'm not, you know, my whole life, I haven't really taken the type of risks that founders take where they, you know, they mortgage their house and they come up with an idea and they stand behind that idea and all that. That, that isn't me. But what I do know how to do is typically fix these things. And, and very often I, I, and a lot, I love CEOs. I have a lot of friends who are CEOs. I've worked well with CEOs, but they very, very seldomly know how to do what I do. And typically I come into the picture after they've been screwing things up for five to 10 years <laughs> and, you know, they say, oh, my God, can we really, you know, maybe our product isn't, can't be sold internationally. We've tried. We've, we've put five really good people on this and they've all, they, none of them been able to sell. Maybe it's impossible to do. And I'm sort of the last choice because I, I very often they think I'm the unlikely choice because very often they're looking for somebody who comes, you know, from their product field or knows their product or they want somebody they know, you know, I think, and you might, this may fit or not your experience, but very often I find CEOs are hiring people that they know who they believe has, have some type of international experience, but they're not, they're, they're very seldomly CEOs in my experience, either they're, good engineers or they're good finance people, but they're not necessarily salespeople. And they're certainly very, very seldomly international salespeople. And I come in and fix, you know, they come and say, well, if we, you know, the only way that we can really build up the value of the company is by building up international sales. And we've tried and we've tried and we can't figure out how to do it. And I fix it. Right. So I'm usually that that's what I end up doing. And that's sort of why I'm, I'm, I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum from the CEOs. But, but again, you know, if I had to keep the, all the different departments happy and the manufacturing running and the shipping, all those things, I couldn't do that. Right. So I, and I can't invent anything. So we all have our strengths and we, I like to stick to my strength. So with that in mind, what are the biggest <laughs> mistakes that you see companies making as they touch try to go global? Well, I'd say it all comes down to thinking it through an intent. Um, first of all, and we had a discussion about this a while back, I think very often they choose the wrong markets to go into for the wrong reasons. And I, I, I've said to people, I said, you know, if I talk to somebody and he says, you know, our first two markets are, China, are Japan and, and France, I'm going to say this guy's going to fail because... The reason he chose those markets was there, there's no product in the world that the best market for them is France and Japan, right? So if, you, if those are the ones you chose, you chose them for the wrong reason. And typically people choose markets because they, they, they think it would be fun to, to do business there or because they just read an article about it 
or they are very often also, even they'll go out and they'll hire a consultant whose focus is on Japan. And of course that, that consultant is gonna tell them to go into Japan, right? So that's, that's one thing. Secondly, I think they very, very often hire the wrong people. And, and that I understand because it's hard. It, it's, if you don't understand what you really need, what happens, you go and you hire somebody you know who you think is international. And typically, again, I don't want to sound insulting, but, but what I like to say is it's sort of like if the board sits down together and they say, you know, we have to double our manufacturing capacity. So, Zach, in a few weeks' time, you're running a course for international sales managers. Can you tell us a bit about that, where it oh, is, yeah. what it's about, and how do people get involved? Great. So, um, I have a website called Global Sales Mentor or you can look for me on LinkedIn, Zach Selch. And essentially I put together, you know, what I found was a lot of people were saying to me, well, how do I find people who know how to do this? Or how do I learn how to do this? So I put together a six day course, which really teaches you what you need to know to be an international sales manager. And I'm running uh, the first run in Chicago. Uh, and it's not, not too expensive, and I think the return on investment would be great. And the idea is that a person who knows how to sell can learn how to be an international sales manager. And if it goes well, I'll try and do it over and over again. That's, that's my goal. And what's the date for that? Uh, it's actually taking place over uh, three weekends in the, in the American fall. So it's in September, October, and November. The idea was to space it out because I wasn't sure that people would want to take a week off from work at once. Okay, so September, October, and November, and people should go to globalsalesmentor.com. www.globalsalesmentor.com or look for me on LinkedIn, Zach Selch. Fantastic, and we will put that in the show notes so that people can easily find it. Are there favorite books or people who've inspired you along the way? Uh, who or what are they and, and why? There are two people who really inspired me, you know, 30 years ago when I started this journey. Um, I don't know if you remember back in the 80s and 90s, there was a whole craze about reading Japanese books. So there was an author called uh, Musashi Miyamoto who wrote the Book of Five Rings. And that was a big book when I was a kid. And he, he was pretty much a homicidal maniac. He wasn't a very nice guy. He went around, you know, Japan dueling and killing people. But one thing I remember from him was he had a style where he fought with two swords. And somebody once said to him, well, can you fight with one sword? And he, he basically picked up one sword and he fought and he won. And then he picked up a, a, an oar from a boat and he fought three duels with an oar. And his, his, the point was, he said, you know, if you know fundamentally what you're doing, your tools don't matter. And I look at that like a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm a ventilator salesman or I'm, a, I'm an IT salesman. And I like to think of it as, well, if you really, really understand how to sell, it isn't about being a ventilator salesman or, or a computer salesman or a copier salesman. It's about being able to put together a process which you can move into other things. And then there was another guy uh, who I read when I was much younger, uh, an American general named Sherman. And um, between the, before the Civil War, 
he spent about 20 years studying about railroads and telegraphs while all the other, you know, all the other officers were studying, you know, how to fire their guns better and, and how to, you know, march their people better and stuff like that. He worked on a very, very unromantic issue, which was logistics. And, but when the war came around, he was better prepared than anybody else. And, and I picked that up in my 20s and it was sort of like, you know, there's all this stuff happening behind the scenes that you need to know. And I took that as a real message in life that, that that's, you know, how to prepare yourself for success is to learn how to do these things. So I hope that doesn't sound too crazy. <laughs> it doesn't sound crazy. I think it's really interesting. It's actually really refreshing uh, to have somebody come on the show and to come up with books that are really, really different. Uh, sometimes <laughs> you hear a lot of the usual books. I love it when people come right. on with, with books that are not the everyday thing. So that's very, very right. cool. Now, Zach, it has been awesome having you on the show today, and it's been just great to really dig in and talk through in detail some of the challenges that come up for companies as they're looking at taking their business overseas. Have you got some final thoughts for us, for, for, for founders, for CEOs who are listening to this show today and, and who are thinking about the possibility of taking the company overseas and wondering whether they should really do it and whether they can really do it. What do you say to oh, those people? Well, well, first of all, um, I would say there's no better way to raise the value of your company than expanding your global footprint, right? So um, I don't know what it's like, honestly, in, in Australia now, but a lot of mid-sized manufacturing companies in America are really owned by people who, who are headed towards retirement. And... Mm -hmm they want to drive up the value of their company before they retire. And the best way to do that is through expanding your international footprint. So yes, I would say it's worthwhile. And it's, it's possible if you're doing well in Australia, I would say that you probably, there are probably other countries that you can sell in, unless you have something that really, you know, it's like Marmite or something that's really just fit for, for the Australian market. Um, you should be able to sell outside of Australia if you look correctly. The, what I would say is you have to find somebody who knows what they're doing to help you out. And that's what people like Cynthia and myself are, are, you know, are, are here for, is that we work in, in helping people do that. And I would say don't, you know, don't go to your brother-in-law just because he did junior year abroad in university or something, right? You, you, you find an expert to help you do this. Yeah, okay. That that makes a lot of sense for me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't argue with that, right, Cynthia? No, not not too much. Like I think I think that that's uh, that's pretty sensible. Zach, it has been awesome chatting to you today. Um, I look forward to you know to keeping up with where you're going and where you're doing. Thanks for being a guest on Business Beyond Borders. Okay, well, thank you, Cynthia. This was a lot of fun too. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you're aspiring to take on the world by storm with your business and you need a little bit of help, check out internationalbusinessaccelerator.com. You can find blogs, eBooks, this podcast, and information about the accelerator itself at that site. So the link again is internationalbusinessaccelerator.com.